1 Kings 17. After five chapters of moral, spiritual, and political decline that we saw in our study last week and the week before, in chapter 17, we come to somewhat of a spiritual oasis. Though it's only been about six or seven page turns and only about 80, or it's been about 80 years since Solomon first sowed the first seeds of idolatry into the nation of Israel. Eighty years has passed in just two weeks of our Bible study. And we've seen that Solomon, who was handed the keys to a golden era of God's work in the world and through his people Israel, by turning to idolatry, he has now left the nation 80 years later in a place where the kingdom is divided. They are no longer unified. But ten tribes have separated to the north and turned to outright paganism. And the two tribes that remained in the south weren't doing that much better, though they were doing slightly better. The people of God at this point in in time now have embraced paganism. They've constructed two golden calves in the land where the people have turned to worship rather than to go to Jerusalem as God had commanded. There was a network of shrines and high places and idols that had been made that the people were giving themselves to and profaning uh, themselves in the name of God. And the heart of the people was turned away. They had become apostate from God. The Bible says to us in Psalm chapter 145, verse 4, it says that one generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. That it's the responsibility of a godly generation to pass on the heritage of godliness to their children and thus to successive generations. And without that work being done of generational succession, the church, if you would, or the kingdom of God is always only one generation away from extinction. And we see a cycle that has formed throughout the history of God's work within the world. We see that God will get a hold of a generation, usually by getting the attention of one man, like a Joseph, or a Moses, or a Joshua, or a David. And through the work that he does in raising that man up, he'll turn the hearts of an entire generation back to God. But that generation will pass off the scene. And usually it happens that the generation that comes behind them, the second generation, they ride the afterglow of what God had done with their parents. They have the name, and they follow God, but not with the same zeal and impetus that their parents did. And then that second generation will pass away, and often by the third, the only thing left of God's work is the name, the reputation, or the stories, the culture, the tradition that's left over from what he did with their grandparents. And often by the fourth generation, even that is gone. The name of God not even venerated or esteemed anymore, and and a nation is completely in a place where they've turned their back on God, and he has to start all over again. And that's where we find ourselves tonight as we come to 1 Kings chapter 17. The backdrop of our chapter is that the nation is in apostasy. We saw in our study last week that the king of the northern tribes is a man whose name was Ahab, who did worse than any succeeding or preceding, sorry, generation before him in terms of wickedness, even taking to wife a woman whose name was Jezebel, basically a witch from a foreign uh, nation. And, and, and it tells us at the, in the very last verse of chapter 16 that it was in his days that Jericho was rebuilt. And it's a seemingly unfitting comment at the end of a chapter, seemingly out of context. But it's not. Because Jericho, if you recall, was the first city that fell when God moved his people in to take the promised land. 
And Joshua declared when Jericho fell, and he said, Cursed is the man that builds up this city again, for he will lay the foundation in his firstborn, and he'll set the gate of it in his oldest son, or in his youngest son. And, and the significance of that prophecy is that if Jericho ever is rebuilt, it will rebuilt, be rebuilt in times and in a scene when the nation has done worse or as bad as conditions were when they first moved in. And so that's the scene that Elijah is now dropped into. And Elijah becomes one of the most famous characters in Old Testament scripture and one of the most famous and most mentioned in the New Testament scriptures. An icon, if you would, for the nation of Israel. And he's been a hero of the faith for so many throughout the generations. But the question is, why? What is it about this man Elijah, this prophet that came at this seemingly insignificant time, that makes us like him so much, that makes him so famous, an icon, if you would. And a couple things, if you're taking notes about Elijah, just by way of introduction or foundation to his life, is that first of all, he was a man of great power. The miracles that were done through him are among the most notable in all of Scripture. A man who could call down fire from heaven, who could run with the chariots of Ahab, who could raise the dead and, uh, you know, slay the prophets of Baal. He was a man who seemed to live in a supernatural realm. Second of all, he was a man who was used mightily by God. Not just in the miracles that he did, but also in what they accomplished. In turning the hearts of an entire generation back to their God. And there's significance in that. Because he didn't turn the heads of the people. It wasn't just that he got their attention uh, and caused them to see the great things that he was doing, like a Samson did, who, that he turned the heads of the nation, but he didn't affect their heart. There was no revival that happened under him. He wasn't a man who turned the hands of a nation, like Solomon did, who caused the nation to be motivated to do great things with their hands, but yet their hearts were unaffected. They turned away. But it says that under Elijah, they turned their hearts back to God again. He grabbed the grip. He gripped the attention of a whole generation. Thirdly, he was a man of incredible boldness to be able to stand before King Ahab and Jezebel and to give the indictment that they were lost, that they were turned from God, and then to mock the 450 false prophets, as we'll see uh, in, when we get to chapter 18, probably next week. But I think the greatest reason why we like Elijah so much and why he's held so high uh, in the esteem of God's people throughout the ages is that he was also incredibly normal, that although he was spiritually strong, in many ways, he was emotionally weak. The New Testament book of James, the Apostle James, chapter 5, verse 17, he gives commentary on the character of Elijah, and he says that he was a man of like passions, like as we are. And he uses that as an example of prayer, encouraging us to pray. And what he tells us there is that he wasn't anything more than what we, that what we, would, uh, that we would be, that, that, that he was mightily used and that he was really no different than anyone else. The lesson in that is that it doesn't matter who we are, that if our lives are consecrated and separated unto God, that he can do equally great things with us. So why is so much text given to this man, Elijah? And it kind of, if you think about it, really makes the book of Kings a little bit asymmetrical. I mean, all of a sudden now we're going to get chapter after chapter after chapter of Elijah's ministry. Uh, and why is that? I think for two reasons. First of all, just because of the works the awesome works that he did, and they're recorded for us. But second of all, it's because God wanted us to see not just the work that he did with Elijah, but he wanted us to see the work that he did in Elijah. Because Elijah was great, but God 
created that greatness in him in the same way that God seeks to create it in us. And we see God's lessons to this man carefully woven throughout uh, the text. Now, amazingly, as we get into it here, all of the characteristics that made Elijah great are given to us in verse 1 of chapter 17. Look at it with me. It says, in Elijah, the Tishbite. We don't know what that means or what that is. We don't know where it is, but we know it says he was of the inhabitants of Gilead. That he said unto Ahab, the king, the wicked king, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. He springs onto the scene suddenly He stands before the Lord and before the king boldly and he declares that there's not going to be rain, that there's going to be a drought and a famine that takes place in the the land. And it's not going to be a famine of weeks or of months, but it will be a famine of years. What we see in this is as we just introduced into this character, we see the, 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 the beginning of his greatness. What we see, first of all, is that he was a man of the spirit. And this will become the great mark of Elijah's life. He will become the scriptural icon, if you would, for Holy Spirit power. This man who's able to call down fire from heaven. Again, fire being a symbol in the scripture of the work of the Holy Spirit. A man able to consume the prophets of Baal, outrun the chariots with supernatural strength. And even in the days of Jesus, Elijah will be synonymously uh, placed in that vernacular of Holy Spirit power as people look at the ministry of Jesus and say he reminds us of Elijah because of the power that he has within his life. We see the marks of it even at his entrance on the scene. We don't know where he came from. We have no idea who he is. There's no genealogy given, no record of his parents, no uh, understanding of, uh, of any foundation of anything. We're, we hear of Ahab, the wicked king, and then all of a sudden, here's Elijah out of nowhere. It's almost unfitting. Like, wait, where is this guy, this character that's coming in into the middle of the story that now takes center stage? We don't know where he is. Even in his death, there's great mystery. It's a man who doesn't die. We'll see at the end of his life, he's caught up into heaven in a chariot of fire, and he mysteriously disappears. And in that, he becomes a perfect picture for us of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus said that that when he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, the wind blows where it blows. No one knows where it comes from or where it's going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And there's no greater description of that illustration than what we see in this man Elijah. Where does he come from? Where is he going? Even in a few, even in a, uh, not tonight, but in our study next week, we're going to see that he runs into another prophet, Obadiah. And he's going to tell Obadiah to send a message. And Obadiah says, nuh-uh, because I'm going to go deliver the message. And when I look for you, you're going to be gone. Who knows where you're coming from or where you're going? And it was the mark of his life as he was a man that was driven by the Holy Spirit of God. We see also that he was a man who was uninfluenced by society. He comes on the scene in a time when paganism was in. And biblical obedience was hugely out. The whole culture and society was going one way, and he had not a trace of that culture or society driving what he did. He was going in a completely unrelated direction, and he was seemingly untouched by the paganism that was going on in it. The very thing that caused James in the New Testament to use Elijah as an example in his exhortation was the fact that he was unspotted by the world. 
He was untouched by the pollution and the degradation of the society that he was growing up in. There's so many in the church today that ignore the call of God to be separate, to not be influenced by the culture that we live in, to not drive with it. In fact, in huge pockets of the church, you actually have the people of God looking to the world to determine how they should do things in order to relate to the world. It's not so in the life of Elijah. He was completely separate from the culture that he was in. He was uninfluenced by society. We see that, uh, as he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives. That was the worst thing that he could have said before Ahab, at least in Ahab's ears, best thing he could say in terms of the truth and what mattered for the nation. The third thing about him that, that made him great is that he was a man of prayer. He calls upon the Lord He calls the Lord to witness. He says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. We're going to find in this man, Elijah, that the thing that he does more than anything else that he does is that he is a man who prays. And it's a characteristic we'll see continually throughout his life. He's also, number four, he's a man of the word. Notice that what he says to Ahab is that it's not going to rain these years but according to my word. Why would Elijah have the boldness to pray or to say those words before Ahab? Again, we're told in James chapter 5, verse 17, it says there that Elijah prayed that it would not rain. And it didn't rain for the space of three and a half years. We're not told that in the text here. But we're told that even this very thing was a result of his prayer that he prayed. But where did he learn that he should pray that way? God, don't send rain. Don't send a famine. Because it was written in the word of God that that's what God would do when the nation turned their back on him. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, in verse 16, it says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and that you turn aside, or then you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, and that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless you should perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord God gives you. God said that when the nation turns from me, that will be the disciplinary action that I will bring, is that I'll send famine upon the land. And so Elijah prays according to what he knew God said he would do. And he sees God answer it. So he was a man of the word of God. But we also see as we look at his life that he was a man that wasn't just in the word for the knowledge that he would have mentally, but for the experience that it would give him practically. In other words, Elijah was a man who knew how to connect what he knew of the word of God with what he was hearing from the spirit of God in his heart so that he would be able to discern the will of God for his life. I find that that's an important balance that's often missed by many Christians. There's many Christians that know the Word of God. They understand the theology. They can go through the text or describe doctrine or teachings. But they don't have a practice of it experientially where they've learned how to discern the will of God and what His Spirit is leading them through the pages of the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about those who are mature in their faith. And he says, but those who are mature in their faith, he says, uh, chapter 5, verse 14, that strong meat in the word belongs to those who are of full age, even those who by reason of use of the word have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And we see that in Elijah's life is not only did he know what God said on the page, but he also knew how to hear God's voice in his heart 
temper it with what he knew scripturally, and then discern what God's will was practically. And it's an example for every one of us. He was also, finally, a man of God. Is that he existed for God and that there was no other reason for his existence other than the glory of God. I want you to think about this for one moment. Is that if Elijah's calling for a famine and he actually prays that God would stop the rain so that his glory could be revived and the nation could be turned back to him again, that he would have to go through the consequences of that himself. That would be like you and I for the sake of God's reputation and for the sake of the health of our nation, saying, God, I pray that you would take away my house and my job and my income, and I pray that you'd cut off my access to a grocery store and to free or into energy that I can use. It would be the exact equivalent of that. We see that Elijah was willing to actually pray for something that would cause him personal discomfort and cost for the sake of God's glory and reputation and for the good of the nation. I had to ask myself as I prepared this, would I be willing to do that? Would I be willing to say before a holy God, God, I'm so concerned about your reputation in this world that I'm willing to lose everything I have in order for your reputation to be restored and for the good of our nation to be brought back again? That's exactly what Elijah did because he was a man of God. It was no question for him what the right thing to do was in that instance, is that he willingly give up all so that God's reputation could be restored. Now, we're called... You and I to be all the things that Elijah was. A man of the Spirit or a woman of the Spirit. Or a person of prayer or of the Word. A person who's unspotted by the world. And a person who is jealous for the glory of God. And anyone who will pray in and say, God, make me that man. God can do with you and with me the same things that he did with the man Elijah. Now the amazing thing is that at the same time God is using Elijah for the nation... He's also working in Elijah to prepare him for the works uh, that he's to do. And the remainder of the chapter really deals with that. What did God do in and with Elijah in this early stage of his ministry to prepare him for what was yet to be later on? And so that's what we see uh, as we come to verse 2. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before the Jordan River. Now, there's two reasons here why God tells Elijah to hide. Number one is because of the wrath of Ahab and Jezebel. He knows it'll only be a matter of time that Ahab will equate the famine that has come with the word that Elijah has spoken, and that he'll seek to kill him and take his life. But we're also going to find that Elijah's not really all that concerned about that. And God really isn't all that concerned about that because the Bible says that he preserves the life of his saints. So that's not the only reason that God's telling him to hide himself. This isn't, in fact, a hiding out of fear, but rather it's a concealing of this prophet because of the spiritual condition of the nation. The Bible talks in a couple of different places about how one of the things that God will do when a people are apostate or turn from him is that he will withdraw and withhold his word and his truth from them. In Isaiah, it talks about how their teachers will no longer be hidden in a corner. In Amos, it talks about how in the last days that there will be a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord in the land. And it's one of the signs of God's judgment when truth ceases to exist. And God hides a prophet who has a message here because of what's going on in the nation. It's not time for God to intervene yet. And it says that it shall be that you shall drink of the brook 
And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning. And bread and flesh in the evening. And he drank of the brook. Now this is amazing to me how God chooses to provide for his servant. He provides for him two ways. One of them is the miraculous. He says, I've commanded the ravens to come and bring you bread and meat every morning and every evening. Now, some people have a problem with that, but I don't. Because the Bible says that he's in control of all things. That he holds all things together by the word of his power. That God spoke and he said, light be and light was. And there's nothing too hard for God. He said, I'm the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can provide miraculously for his people as he chooses to do for Elijah here. But he also provides for him providentially. That is, he leads him to a brook where he'll be able to drink the water of the brook. There's nothing miraculous about that at all. It's the runoff from the water that trickles down from the mountains. It flows through the brooks and streams. And that's how God chose to give Elijah water. So food miraculously, water providentially, God promises to provide. Now, God promises in every generation that he's going to take care of his people. In Psalm chapter 33, verses 18 and 19, he says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. He's going to provide. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 31 and 32, he said, Take no anxious thought what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all of these things. He promises that he'll provide for his people. He always does. But how he chooses to provide the needs of his people, that is completely up to him. There are times that God does it through the miraculous. And maybe you've experienced that in some way. That God has just miraculously provided for you a need that you had, whatever it was. Whether it was maybe health related, or maybe it was sustenance or food or Maybe it was sanity at a certain time or a job and just a miraculous way in which it was provided. Many times he provides providentially. He leads us in a way where we find ourselves enjoying his provisions in our lives. Either way, we rejoice. But notice what happens in verse 7. It says that it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Isn't it interesting that it wasn't the miraculous that subsided here, but rather it was the providence. The ravens kept on coming, but the brook was no longer flowing. The miraculous was still in place, but it still meant that he had to move on because he still needed water. It's amazing to me that God, the ways of God are a lot like a kaleidoscope. They keep on going, but they're never the same twice. So often we think, well, God, you provided for me this way last time. That's the way you're always going to provide for me in the future. You brought water. You sent the ravens. But here we see that the brook dried up. God has a different plan. He's going to lead Elijah a different way now. And he does the same thing in our lives. He'll do things a certain way, provide a certain way in a certain season. But then he'll change things around in order to move us on. And he does that here um, with uh, Elijah. And so he moves on. Verse 8, it says, And the word of the Lord came unto him saying, Arise and get thee to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon. So now he's told to leave the borders of Israel and actually go up into Lebanon, the very area where Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, is from. And he says, And dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman 
there to sustain you. Now, Cherith, which is the brook that dried up where he had been previously, the word in the Hebrew means a cutting, a cutting away. And Elijah was called by God to spend some time there being refined, being sifted, being subtracted, no longer enjoying the comforts of life in Israel, but simply waiting upon the Lord, trusting in the Lord, letting God be his all in all. Now he goes to Zarephath. Zarephath means the refinery. God's still working in this man's life as he leads him in preparation for the things that are yet to be in his future. It says um, he commanded a widow woman there to sustain him. That Elijah is to go up into this area and there God has commanded already a woman to feed him. Now isn't it amazing, it amazes me, that God had already spoken the provision that Elijah would have next before Elijah even knew about it. Perhaps he's done that for you right now. You're at a place in your life where you say, I don't know what's next. I don't know what God's got for me in my future. But he does. He's got it all in his hands, and he's already commanded the thing to be done, even though Elijah doesn't know it. And amazingly, not even the woman knows it. But God has already done it. He's prepared the way ahead of time. Why would God send Elijah to Zarephath, a pagan place, and of all places, to a widow's house to be provided for? Why would God do this to Elijah? I think for two reasons. Number one, to produce a humble workman. This would be extremely humiliating for any Jew in those days to go and gain provision outside the borders of his land, number one. Number two, it would be humiliating for any man to have to be supported by a woman, a strange woman at that, and even more so for a Jew a Gentile woman, this woman from Zarephath. And third of all, we're going to see that God is going to command Elijah not just to be fed by her and sustained by her, but he's also going to be called to live with her, which is something that he was not even supposed to do, you know, under normal circumstances because of the appearance that it would give and all. So what's God doing? He's humbling this servant that he's about to use. Pride is the antithesis of godliness. And pride destroys ministry. Elijah was a man who took pride in his zeal for God. We're going to see it throughout his life. He's going to say on more than one occasion, I, even I only, am left of the prophets of the Lord, and I have been zealous for the Lord God of hosts, and there's no one else. He has this attitude as though he's the only righteous one in all of the kingdom of God, that he's the only one that's standing for God. God's going to later rebuke him and say, no, I've reserved 7,000 other people within this small nation of mine that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one, Elijah. But he has this seed of self-righteousness in him. And God is going to take it out, and he's using these experiences to do it. Elijah, I want you to go, and I want you to go to a Gentile territory and be supported by a woman. No, no way, Lord. I'll get a job. I'll work. God could say it's not going to work. This is the way that I've planned for you to be provided for in this season. And if you're not going to do it, then you're not going to eat. And we don't hear that wrestling match, but we can imagine that it was there. And Elijah concedes and he goes uh, and he does this in this thing. The other reason, not just to produce a humble workman, but also to reach a seeking woman. Jesus brings up this occasion in a discussion that he was having with some religious rulers of a synagogue in Luke chapter 4. And it says that as they contemned the gracious words that he spoke 
and they had a problem with the sermon that he was preaching, he looked at them directly, and with boldness, Jesus declared to them, Luke 4, 24, it says that he said, Verily I say unto you, that no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent except unto Sarepta, or Zarephath in the Hebrew, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And what Jesus is telling us here is that part of the reason that Elijah was sent to this place is because that was where God found faith. That although there were widows in Israel, there were none that would receive the ministry of Elijah or the validation of his ministry. But God found a widow woman in a Gentile city who was truly, genuinely seeking, that there were questions in her heart. We're going to find soon that she's very sensitive to her own behavior and her past and her history. And there's a work of the Spirit happening, and God sends his servant to the place where faith is going to be. God had been working in her, she was aware of her need, and God provided a means by sending Elijah to her. And so not only a humbling of his servant, but also the seeking of a woman. Well, here's what happens with this woman when Elijah encounters her in verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and he said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and he said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in your hand. Now this is an amazing thing because first of all, we know already that this is a time of famine. That even the smallest brook where Elijah would lodge and drink isn't any longer producing any water, but he comes to this place. And as she looks across from where she's gathering sticks in the hot, arid sun of that hot, arid place, she sees a man with dried skin and parched lips who looks like he's traveled a great distance from where he had been by the Jordan River in the central part of Israel all the way up past the northern border into Lebanon. And he's traveled all that way, famished, dehydrated. And he looks at her and he says, fetch me a little water. And she obliges. But then as she's going, he says, and let me add to that. Make me a morsel of bread as well. Could you bring me something to eat? And it says that she said in verse 12, as the Lord thy God lives, I have not a cake, but only a handful of meal or grain in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks. That doesn't make a very big fire, does it? That I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Amazing. Here is this man who's brought to this woman and he's called to ask of her provision. And she re we realize that she's impoverished, that she has absolutely nothing. What we have here is we have God seeking to draw a woman out in faith. The same lesson that God just taught Elijah at the brook to trust in him and that he would provide. Now God is using Elijah to draw out the same thing in this woman. Though she has only a little bit of provision, Elijah asks her to do it. Now watch what, her, uh, watch what Elijah says to her in verse 13. It says, Elijah said unto her, Fear not, but go and do as you have said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after that make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal, the grain, shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. 
And so she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil uh, fail according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. God is seeking to draw this woman out in faith. That though she doesn't have the provision that's there, and though it doesn't seem to make sense to her that she would do what Elijah's asking, he's giving her a promise by the word of the Lord that if she steps out in faith and gives according to what she has first to God and to his prophet, then after that, God promises to provide. And it says that the woman did it. She obliged the word. She believed what Elijah said. And she saw through her faith, God provide miraculously throughout the famine. She had grain enough and oil enough all the way throughout the years that remained of the famine that was going uh, to happen. There's a principle here. It's the law of first fruits. It's not like a mosaic law, the kind of thing where it's, well, we're under the law or it's a command of God. No, it's a law that exists from Genesis to Revelation that God sets forth before his people in the word of God. And that is this, that God asks of his people for the first and for the best of what we have. And it applies across the board, not just to our income, that is the money that we make, but also for our increase. They were an agrarian society. They're currency was crops, but they were to bring the first fruits of their crops and bring the first and the best to God. If they were sheep, they were to bring sheep, no matter what it was that they were raising or what they had, income increase. And it even goes into the arena of time and energy. God says, give me the first and the best. And here's what he promises in return, that you'll have plenty left over for yourself, even if I have to do it miraculously. And we see him do it throughout scripture. And many of us have experienced it within our lives. I talk to a lot of people, a lot of Christians that will say, I never have enough money. And I never have enough time. Or I never have enough energy. Well, here's a hint. Give the first and the best of those things to God and see what happens. And I'll leave it at that. Well, notice what happens next with this widow. It says in verse 17, it says, It came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Now you remember that this is a widow woman, and she has a young child. And here she... she equates the death of the child with her sin. And it has led many scholars to believe that perhaps this child was the son of an illegitimate marriage or perhaps an affair that took place after the passing of her husband. We don't know. It's conjecture. But we see that as he dies, she equates the death of it to God's wrath being poured out upon her because of some sin that's within her life. Now, right off the bat, I want to point out to you that that's not the case. That that's not the reason for this passing of the son. Now, we, we don't know what it is other than that the Bible says that the sun and the rain fall upon the just and the unjust alike. We live in a fallen world and fallen things happen to people in a fallen world. And not every bad thing that happens to us is because of some sin that we're being judged for. Job, I think it's in chapter 10, it says, As sparks fly upward, so also man is appointed to evil all of his days. That just as in a fire, you see the sparks that fly up towards heaven. That's the tendency of things in a fallen world. We go through tough times. That's a question and a struggle that many people have. Are the things that I'm going through in my life, the difficult things, right now the judgment of God because of some sin? 
They came to Jesus and they asked him, they said, hey, those Galileans that Herod mingled their blood with their sacrifices, did that happen because of their sin? And Jesus said, no. But if I say unto you, you don't likewise repent, then your destiny will be the same as theirs. And then Jesus took it a step further and he said, do you think that those whom the tower in Siloam fell upon, a historical event that some place that happened where a tower fell and people died, He said, do you think that that happened because they were more sinful than everybody else in the nation? No, he said. But he did say, but unless you likewise repent, you will also perish. See, every one of us is appointed with death ultimately. Though we go through tragic things in our lives presently, ultimately, if we don't have Christ, we die. And then that's it for all of us because we're under the curse of sin. And the end of all of that is death. But he came to remove the curse, and to give eternal life. And so God is doing a work here in this woman, and he's also doing a work here in preparing Elijah, and thus things happen. This child dies for reasons that we don't know, but we see that God's going to work it to the good because he's got a plan through it. Notice what happens, verse 19. And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom, and he carried him up into a loft where he abode, where he was living. And he laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord, and he said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul Come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again. This is the first time in the Bible that anyone is raised from the dead. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber, the room, into the house, and he delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said to her, See thy son living. Why would God have this happen? And Why is it here recorded for us in the Scripture? I believe that the lesson that God wants Elijah to learn through this is important. That is this, is that ministry to a multitude is not more important than ministry to one. God is going to use Elijah in a greater way in his future to turn a whole nation back to him. But God needs Elijah to know that a ministry to a multitude is not more important than just the one person that needs a life. And number two is that ministry is not so much about doing things for God as it is about bringing life to people. That's the purpose of it. See, the service that you and I render to God, our service is not just simply about doing things for God because he needs service done. Rather, God wants to bring life to people. And we're the agents of that life. We've been given life and we're called to freely give away what we've been freely given. And that's what God wants with our life. And it's a lesson that Elijah had to learn. That's the one reason. The second reason that this, uh, or the thing that we see here is not only was there one that needed ministry, but we see that that one just happened to be a child and the child of this woman. A dead child is raised to life. Why and how? Two things. Number one, Through prayer, and number two, through love. Elijah prayed, first of all, earnestly. Three times he stretched himself upon the child, and he cried out to the Lord, and he said, Lord, why have you slain the son of this woman who is helping me and who also is serving you through that? 
And then second of all, it says that he stretched himself out upon the child, which is huge because a Jew was forbidden to ever come into contact with a corpse. It would render him unclean ceremonially. But we see because of his care for this woman and his passion for what needed to be done for this young life, he was willing to stretch himself in order to reach this one dead child. Praying for people and then stretching ourselves in love to reach into their lives. That's what brings life to those who are spiritually dead. That's the lesson that God is seeking to teach us here. And it's interesting. Notice in verse 24, it says, And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Isn't it amazing that it wasn't the miracle that Elijah did in providing for this woman oil and grain that caused her to trust that he was valid prophet sent by the Lord. But it was in the giving of life to her dead son that, that, that she saw and said, now I know that the Lord uh, is God and that the word of the Lord um, in your mouth is the truth. I commend those in our fellowship that work with young people, those that serve in the Sunday school and that teach in the Pioneer Club and uh, you know, are a part of the various youth ministries, junior high youth group and senior high youth group, and that give of themselves sacrificially to work with those that are young and dead, literally, spiritually, not literally, physically, within our church. But the thing that amazes me is how reluctant our church is collectively as a whole to work with youth. It seems as though that's the hardest area to get people to give of themselves to invest in, uh, in young lives. And, and, and uh, I'm amazed at it. It's like pulling teeth to get people to serve in children's ministry here at the church. People will donate time for other things. They'll donate food. I mean, they'll give them themselves in incredible ways. But once it's, hey, there's a need in the Sunday school or the Pioneer Club or in the nursery, it's, oh, no, no. I'm not called to that. That's not my ministry. It's amazing to me. But I truly believe that it's the key to spiritual success and, and really for the, the, the furtherance of the kingdom of God in any generation. There's two reasons why I think working with kids is where it's at. Number one is this, because Jesus works. That when Jesus is truly received into a life, now I'm not talking about facts that are placed in someone's head, but when the spirit of Christ enters into the heart of a young person and they turn on for Christ, they become born again, they let Jesus into their life, that child's life has been saved. They're going to be spared from a world of hurt. I talk to parents all the time that are at their wit's end. They don't know what to do with their kids. They're, they're off the wall. They're, they're, older kids are getting addicted to drugs. They're out of control. There's just mass chaos, and parents have tried everything they can. They've tried psychology. They've tried therapy. They've tried discipline. They've tried so many things, and they find themselves at a place where they say, I just don't know what to do with my kids. But Jesus works. When Jesus comes into the life of anyone, and if you're here tonight, you can testify and say, yeah, Jesus works. It's the reason that I'm here right now is because I tried everything else in my life to save my life and nothing else worked. But when Jesus came into my life, that's when transformation and change began to happen. But Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And if God can transform the life of a stubborn adult, how can he not change the life of a child? And so when Jesus comes into the life of a child, that child's whole future has been set right. They've been spared a world of hurt, and that life has been saved because of it. And we have the opportunity as older saints 
to reach into the lives of those kids and to make that difference to give them Jesus. And here's the second reason, not just because Jesus works, but that because Jesus works in the life of a child, it trickles up into the life of a parent. That's exactly what happens here in the text. See, what happens is when a parent who doesn't know how to control their child or raise their child or direct their child in the right way, and now they see that child sane in their right mind and walking with the Lord, the parent says, what happened to you? It's Jesus. Jesus is in my life. And the parent says, what? How is that? And then they inquire, and then they come to know Jesus Christ. See, the key to reaching adults is through the kids. That's how it works. They get saved, and then the adults follow. That's what happens here. The woman says, now I know that the Spirit of God is in you of a truth in this thing. So when you reach a child, you reach the parents because they see the changed lives. Well, people say, but I don't know how to minister to children. It's real simple. Pray for them and love them. That's what Elijah does here. You say, yeah, but it's children's ministry. They're kids. They're loud. They're rambunctious. They're annoying. They have no attention span. It's difficult. Listen, stretch yourself. That's what Elijah did. He stretched himself out upon the child. He invested of his life into the life of a young person. He prayed earnestly three times, and God answered his prayer. And that which was dead, spirit, well, physically, came to life physically, but that which dies dead spiritually will also be revived spiritually as you do it. That's what he's called us to do. You see another highlight of Elijah's prayer life in this, and that is this, is that it says that he prayed three times for the child. Some people think, well, how many times should I pray to God for something and keep praying if I don't receive an answer? Jesus prayed three times in the garden that the cup would pass from him, and the cup didn't pass. Paul prayed three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed from him, and the thorn wasn't removed. And God said, stop praying about that, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. So how many times should we pray for something, or how often should we pray for something before we just realize, hey, it's not God's will. He's not working in this. He doesn't want to answer this prayer at this time. The life of Elijah says, keep praying. Don't give up. After you've prayed three times and God hasn't answered, keep praying because he's not done yet. Unless he tells you, I'm not going to answer that prayer the way you're asking me to answer it. Or unless he answers it another way, which is an answer to your prayer, just not the one you wanted. Then keep praying and asking God to do it. We see that Elijah was persistent in prayer in this thing. And it's going to be a mark of his life as he's going to go on that he continues to pray over and over again. So in conclusion, and hey, we're finishing almost on time tonight. I didn't say amen yet, so, uh, you know. Throughout this chapter, we see God cutting the cherith. We see him refining with Zarephath. We see him breaking down Elijah, so to speak, because he's building him up to use him for great things in the future spiritually. Do you see the progression? He comes on the scene He's already being used by God to declare the message to a pagan king, to Ahab, that it's not going to rain. But then his faith is tested and his faithfulness to God when he's sent to a brook for up to a year in solitude and patience to wait while he's fed by an unclean bird in a dirty stream. He's moved again and asked to draw a Gentile woman out in faith and humbled to live with her and receive provision from her. He's asked by God to give himself to one person to stretch himself out and to be humbled and to validate his calling before an audience of one, before God would elevate and use him greatly to reach a whole nation. The Christian life is like that for every one of us. 
First of all, God doesn't give us the whole picture all at once. He didn't tell Elijah, hey, you're going to call down fire from heaven and humble 450 false prophets. Then you're going to slay them with a sword. Then you're going to outrun the chariots. You're going to do great. He didn't tell him any of that. He simply said, give this message to Ahab. And he said, now go hide by the brook. That was all he knew. Well, Lord, what am I doing here? I don't know. I've been here for up to a year. Lord, what am I supposed to do? Lord, lead me, help me. And then the brook dries up. Oh, Lord, how could it get any worse? You know, I'm asking you to help me. And now the brook, no, go to Zarephath. Oh, come on. No, up there, Lord, that's Jezebel territory. That's pagan land. I'm not working in New York City. Come on, Lord. Please, Greenwich Village, San Francisco. I'm a prophet of God. I don't want to do that, Lord. That's where I'm leading. And he takes him into the refinery and it's there. He's humbled, he's brought low, and then it's a ministry of one. It's one thing, it's one woman and her son that God has called Elijah to minister to, as we're going to see in the opening verses next week of chapter 18, that it's for years now that he's in this place just ministering to one person. As God breaks him down, as he humbles him, as he causes him to sit under the reproach of the appearance of evil, living with a Gentile woman and her son, what does that look like, God? Don't worry about it, humble yourself. He says to Elijah, All the while because God has a great plan in store of what he wants to do with Elijah's future. He wants to build him down, break him down so that he can build him up and use him to reach the nation. If Elijah had not gone to the brook, then his life plan would have stopped right there. God would have done what he was going to do, but he would have done it another way. If from the brook he refused to go to Zarephath because he didn't want to be further humbled, then God still would have gotten his way and he would accomplish his plan, but Elijah would have been left out of it because he wasn't going along with what God had for him. There are some of you that are here tonight and you're tempted in the place where you are at right now to check out of God's plan. You say the season of preparation or the time of humbling or whatever it is that you're doing that I can't see the end of is too long and I don't understand it, I don't get it, and I don't want it any longer. The exhortation of the Holy Spirit of God to you tonight is hang in there. Because what he is doing is he is working exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think in ways that you can't see or understand. And if you'll hang in and abide, then the fruit that will come out of your life will be lasting and powerful. There's some of you that you can look at your life and you can say, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but it's too late. I already checked out. I remember the moment, it was years ago, and I was at a point and they said, God, that's enough. I don't want this humbling anymore. I don't want this trial, this breakdown. And your conditions continued, but something changed in your heart. You said, God, I don't want to follow you fully any longer. I'm still a Christian. I'm still going to church. I'm still reading the Bible. I'm still going to study. I'm still praying, Lord. I'm not unsaved anymore. But I checked out of that call that I felt, that urgency, that impelling. I felt inside that, that, Lord, you had something for me, that it was more, that, that my life on this earth was more than just the mundane. There's something more in this life. It's not too late. But will you say, God, whatever your will is for me, whatever you have to do in my life to get me ready for what it is that you want to do with me in the days that we're in, or in the job that I'm working, or in the society that I have, or to reach even just one person that needs me to stretch myself over their life, that they might know you personally. Lord, get me back in the game. I believe that we're living in days like Elijah lived in. There is no greater life than to live your life completely for the Lord and to serve his purposes. Jesus said, if you seek to find your life in this world, you're going to lose it. 
But if you'll lose your life completely for him, you'll find it, you'll keep it, and you'll have abundant and eternal life. But know this, that there is no person that can be used by God greatly that has not paid a high price in the secret place. I began the study tonight talking about generational succession. We're due in this country right now for one of two things, either revival or judgment. These are the days of Elijah. I printed up this news article. I saw it today. This is from CBS Charlotte in uh, North Carolina. A high school student was allegedly suspended after breaking a class rule of saying bless you after a classmate sneezed. Kendra Turner, a senior at Dyer County High School, said bless you to her classmate who sneezed, and her teacher told her that the term was for church. She said that we're not going to have godly speaking in her class, and that's when I said we have a constitutional right, Turner Turner told uh, WMC. When she defended her actions, the teacher told Turner to see an administrator, and the student said that she had to finish the class period in in in-school suspension. We are living in days where we are fourth generation. People have turned their backs on God. What's the point? The point is this. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose heart is completely set upon him that he might show himself strong in their behalf. And I believe that even now, God is looking for an Elijah. He's looking for someone who will say, Lord, make me the man of God, the man who's jealous for your glory and your reputation. The man of your word who's willing, Lord, to let my lens through which I see all the world be your scripture and your script. The man who's willing to humble himself and pray and wait upon the Lord and say, God, direct and use my life. The person who's willing to forsake all to say, God, what do you want to do with me in the days that we live in? May God give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, that You continue to work. You said, for hitherto my father works. We know, Lord, that you'll finish what you started even to the end. And I would ask tonight, Lord, as you scan this congregation, as you look over the souls and the hearts of those of us that are gathered here, Lord, I pray that your word would stir us, that our hearts would be opened, and that you would be able to take our lives, Lord, and use them for you again. We pray, Lord, that we'd be people filled with your Holy Spirit. People surrendered and submitted, dead to our own selves. Moving, Lord, in a realm that's beyond what we see and hear in this world. Separated completely from this world. And so, Lord, we we yield ourselves, we lend ourselves, and we pray, Father, upon this altar of living sacrifice, may our lives be found and taken up. God, may we live for you and serve that highest purpose that any man could ever serve. To serve for the king of another world. So, Father, please, we pray tonight, Lord, that those of us that have backed down, for any that have said, that's enough. Lord, that tonight there would be a time of refreshing, a fresh outpouring that would come right from your throne. And Lord, that you would lift up many that are cast down. We know, Lord, that you're good and gracious, that you're slow to anger and rich in love. You set a smoking coal, you won't quench it, you'll breathe it into life. You set a bruised reed, you won't break it, but you'll fix it, you'll lift it up. So, Lord, we pray tonight, Lord, that you would work in every life here. Pray for those that are being humbled, Lord, that feel as though they're in the valley, in the trench, by the dried brook, humbled, living with a Gentile pagan widow. Lord, that tonight you would give insight into those things and that whatever preparation you're working in our lives, Lord, we ask that you would carry it to completion. So have your way, do your will, and use us in these days 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.